This fucking guy. Hello, my little Cajun filet biscuits. Welcome to This Fucking Guy, a podcast about self-care. If self-care is one long scream into the void. Here is where we use expletives and alcohol to emotionally process the creeps, jerks, and p-words that compose the shitty elevator music of our lives. It's just the price I pay. Red Martinez. My destiny is calling me, Ginger Golub. You know what that destiny is? A white pizza with ricotta and broccoli. Delicious. Nom, 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 nom. It's on the way. We have this weird obligation to condense this episode into 50 minutes so we can jump on the pizza right as it arrives. So, scream into the void real fast, my baby. <laughs> um, so, a gender reveal update. Mm. Yeah, more, um, more terrible things as a result of gender reveals. You, oh. of course, heard about that explosion in New Hampshire. Where they like, you know, were so excited about their baby that they had, they had an explosion that like took down walls and cracked windows and like erupted, like the shock wave just vibrated across yeah. like thirty miles or whatever the fuck. It it picked up on seismic radars. Foundations <laughs> of houses were destroyed. All to say, this, this fetus got a pee pee. Congrats! It's a boy! Now you need to pay off my homeowner's insurance. It's a boy who won't be able to afford to go to college. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they used, like, you, what was it, 30 Probably pounds? Ta- yeah, 30 something pounds. And of- it was tannerite. We, we talked about tannerite in our gender reveal episode because that was the substance used by that Texas, um, the guy border- who blew himself up. No, the border patrol guy oh. in Texas that started the wildfire. A favorite among idiots. <laughs> yeah, it was that guy. Because, again, you can get Tannerite in Texas the way you can get, like, a Coca-Cola. They're just, here's an explosive material. Have it. Go nuts. Go nuts. Uh, hopefully you found a quarry. What I will say... <laughs> What I will say, at least about this family, is that they did have permission to be at the quarry. Oh, knew, well. Which they, well, at least they didn't just go to someone's random private I property mean, to explode 30 pounds of tanner, right? That's true, but it's also New England. I feel like you have de facto permission to be on How anyone's quarry. How you get right in New England? I imagine that something's more highly regulated than vapes. Dude, I don't know. Also, why did you need 30 pounds I don't need 30 pounds of, like, anything except maybe kitty litter. They're super excited about that pee-pee. They were just like, oh, yes, this is going to, we really need to announce to the entire town that it's a penis. And they did. <laughs> they did. The whole town knows. Yep. <laughs> so, again, another one for the for the Wikipedia article of why gender reveals are bad. They're bad. Yeah, yeah. I did want to, um, I probably won't do it. In this episode, but I think about I'm thinking about doing a bonus episode where we do a nice Matt Gates update. Yeah, because we're gonna need one, you know. I mean, I think that it's also our responsibility to wait a little bit longer and see, you right. know, where where the indictments land. Exactly, but I, I but the more that comes out, I'm like, this is gonna need its own thing. So it is delightful. Keep checking our Facebook for updates. Oh, it's so great. Anyway, and on that note. I know we're speeding it up today, but again, pizza's on the way. Yep. Let's get some therapy. All right, Ginger, before the pizza gets here, you're going to need to tell me about this fucking guy. Yeah, I've picked the longest topic possible. Well, that's that's going to be difficult. 
Uh, yeah, and it feels disrespectful to do a speed run because I'm finally fucking doing it, y'all. Do- doing it and doing it well. Uh, I'm finally talking about the history of police in the United States. You're going to try to do this in one episode while we have the time limit of pizza. Of pizza. Wow. Um, that's, um, that, you know, you set yourself goals. We'll make our husbands bring us toasted ravioli upstairs. Ooh. Um... So, police, they're bastards. They are. Uh, <laughs> historically, even. Historically, <laughs> historically, this has been the case. I feel obligated to hit y'all with a disclaimer up front. I am a cis white woman who tries her best to be an ally to the LGBTQ community, communities of color, and other marginalized people. That's the perspective I'm coming from with all of this. Um, additionally, as Ren has alluded to in my Mesmer episode, a comprehensive history of policing in the U.S. would be an entire podcast series by itself. And I don't have the bandwidth for that. I don't think you do either. Um no, we don't want to actually drink ourselves into alcohol poisoning. No, no, I need the sliver. Um, <laughs> it's the only one I got. Yeah, I'm also only going to be focusing on policing, even though, I n- believe me, I know there are so many fucking problems in the goddamn criminal justice system. We'll get to those another day. And I'm guessing we're talking about community policing rather than, like, federal level. Yeah, I'm not talking about the FBI or the CIA. Because that's their own episode. That's its own. Th- J. Edgar Hoover, I'm coming for you. <laughs> um, also, in terms of terminology, I'm going to be using police to refer to law enforcement officers that would not necessarily have called themselves police. And also, I don't think it's going to... Is it going to surprise you that racing that policing has racist roots? What? Yeah, I'm going to try to use the term enslaved people rather than slave whenever possible because I get that the letter's dehumanizing, but at some points I might use terminology like slave patrol because it's the common term and it's what yeah. they call themselves. And uh, Please don't get mad at me. Finally, if this is the first podcast of ours you're listening to, we are... We Theor- love you. We love you. We are theoretically a comedy podcast. <laughs> um, it's weird to talk about this kind of thing in a comedy podcast and, and still have hot zingers. We'll, we're going to do our best. Yeah, we're going to do our best. Uh, it, and I guess we promise to punch up. We always punch up. Yeah. When we punchy, it's up. Yep. And it's up and it's up. When it's up, then it's up. And it's yeah, yeah. Uh, I will go ahead and tell you that my primary source was an NPR throughline uh, podcast with historian Khalil Muhammad, who I will be quoting a lot because I love him. I love him now. Oh, good. So, the police didn't always look like they do today. What? No, no, no. Uh, in colonial America, law enforcement was seen more as a part-time gig and was definitely private and for-profit. Like, paid for by the wealthy private citizens could that could afford to pay for right. it. Right. It's it's mostly like, hey, like, I got stuff. I don't want people yeah. to steal it. Yeah. I'm going to pay you Blacksmith Jones on the weekends to just, like, hang out. Well, additionally, localities often relied on a night watch, which was basically a neighborhood watch. It was uh, volunteer Puritans making sure no one was drinking or doing sex work. Oh, so not even, like, the don't steal my shit. It's just like, are you having fun? Fuck you. We're going to fuck off with that. It was a real bad way to do it. 
because no one wanted to be on the Night Watch because well, yes, the fun suck. They're a bunch of fucking squares. <laughs> no one wants to be a no. Uh, and so they had this problem with people getting drunk or just falling asleep, like, all the time. And it also didn't help that, like, sometimes people got assigned to that for community service instead of, like, picking up litter by the side of the highway because they didn't have highways because it was the 1600s. Fair. Yeah. But uh, Night Watchmen did have constables who supervised them, so it wasn't entirely volunteer-run for what that's worth. In the frontier regions of the United States, like, as it expanded beyond 13 of them... Manifest destiny. Yeah. You saw vigilante regulators and committees of vigilance... Yeah. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. ...pop up to introduce order where none existed in areas without a formal police force. Like... Without any oversight or consequences, of course. Yeah, that's a mob. Mm, yeah. That's what a mob is. Yeah. So, in my research, there is sort of a lack of detail on policing in the West. Uh, most of the dialogue on historical policing is set in the North and South for reasons- uh, The history of policing in the West, I've seen Tombstone, okay? I know what I know what happens. That was supposed to be my sound effect. I, a I appreciate weed. that. Okay. Um... Yeah, I've seen Tombstone. I saw The Seven Samurai. You're my Huckleberry. Uh, (laughs) I haven't seen that movie. That's all I know about it. And that's from a uh, murder (laughs) uh, podcast I was listening to. Anyway, uh, it sounds like it was pretty universal among early police. Um, They kind of weren't police at this point, but saying officers of the law sounds convoluted. Um, The early volunteer police knew that they were unpopular killjoys, so they didn't wear badges a lot of the time, and they often pretended not to be police uh, because they were embarrassed. Because they were embarrassed. Because nobody liked them. I don't even know her. No. Some localities looked at this and went, no, we're going to make this a mandatory service, kind of like the draft, I think. Um, but when that happened, if you got tapped to be a policeman you and you had enough money to pay somebody else to do it, you would ironically hire, like, a local ruffian or criminal to do the heavier, quotes here, policing oh. on your behalf. So That's there what was- justice looks like. Justice is being drafted into having to do something that is good and just, and you having enough money to be like, actually... Yeah. I'm going to let criminals do it. Mm. Mm. America, the criminal justice system. Many places used militias to maintain order, but that's kind of a different thing than day-to-day policing. Uh, So I'm not going to get into it too much because that could be its own episode. I'll be saying that a lot, I think. But I think the militias had a lot more to do with, like, dealing with, like, native problems or, like, issues with, like, Larger community stuff. I think the policing policing tends to do with more like individual, like you're drunk in public. Yeah, don't steal this man's items. So it's important to consider that there were big differences between between the ways that policing developed in the north and the south. It was like 
it was diametrically opposed system. Not diametrically opposed. It was very different systems. I will be taking these piece by piece. Yeah, um, not to, I mean, I guess I get a little bit spoiler alert. I think when you hear about the history of policing, you tend to hear specifically just the idea of the slave patrols. Like this idea. Oh, I was going to say you hear specifically like they were old-timey constables and they were following the English model of Well, policing. I'm talking about like SJWs talking <laughs> history of policing. Ah, you mean the only people listening to our podcast. Yes. Um, specifically this idea that policing grew out of, like, safe pa- slave patrols and slave catching. But, like, yeah. the entirety of the United States wasn't composed that way, my understanding. So, different. yeah, in the North, as, like, it became a country and linear time moved on, cities got bigger. Um, and the Night Watch thing became mostly useless because cities were too big for a volunteer, like, keep an eye out, uh, system to work. The first publicly funded organized police force with ops, with officers on duty full time was created in Boston. In that eight, sounds like Boston. Yeah, in yeah. 1830. Mm-hmm. Does anything good happen in Boston? No. No. These early police forces were modeled after the English policing systems, as I alluded to, and as apparently you learn in every criminal justice class, I guess. The Magna Carta. Magna Carta. (laughs) Is that anything? I don't know. Took a lot of inspiration from the military. That's how they got all their fucking titles. Yeah. Crime historian Gary Potter says, quote, Businesses had been hiring people to protect their property and safeguard the transport of goods from the port of Boston to other places. These merchants came up with a way to save money by transferring the cost of maintaining a police force to citizens by arguing that it was for the collective good. Of course. Oh, my God. These rich ass fucks. At the end of the day, it's always yep. rich ass fuck. It's always rich ass fuck. It's like I want to pay people to like protect my shit from poor people who would steal it, but actually, I want the poor people to pay for me, pay for those people to protect my shit. Yeah, it it was basically socializing law enforcement to protect capitalism, which was the America story. A choice. I hate it. Yes, I hate it. <laughs> In the South, police forces weren't created to protect merchants' goods. Because the South's whole scene was less about trade and more about slavery, as we have already alluded to. Trigger warning. This is going to be most of it. Dip out if you have to. We will understand. Um. So starting in 1704, so like before America was America, we see formal slave patrols in the Carolinas in just kind of radiating out from there. I guess, uh, by the time John Adams was president, every state that had slavery had a slave patrol. So cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, by law, almost all white men. They uh, barely had a constitution, but we all have slave patrols. Yeah. Yeah. Properties. Yeah. They didn't even have like good fake teeth. By law, almost all white men of a certain age, like uh, mid-20s to their 40s, um, had to serve on these patrols for up to a year. I'm going to guess that didn't count if you were rich. It did, actually. Even rich people? Yes, even they rich couldn't people. just pay for some criminal to do it? Oh, girl, you'll see. Um, slave patrols were tasked with preserving the institution of slavery. Eh. 
by chasing down enslaved people who had made a break for it and preventing uprisings among the enslaved population. Because how fucking dare the people you kidnapped try to... Be unkidnapped. Be unkidnapped. This model is honestly more in keeping with America's actual roots than the northern style of policing, no matter what your criminal justice class tries to tell you. Um, According to Professor Michael Robinson of the University of Georgia, the first deaths in America of black men at the hands of law enforcement can be traced back as early as 1619 when the first slave ship, the Dutch man-of-war vessel, landed in Point Comfort, Virginia. I would disagree with the idea that, like, this one is more indicative of the American tradition than the other, because I think both represent the American tradition equally well. You have white supremacy, and then you have capitalism. Yeah. And if there's two things that this great nation is founded on, it's those things. As as I alluded to, I'm going to be quoting a lot from historian Khalil uh, Gibran Muhammad, who wrote the condemnation of blackness, race, crime, and the making of modern urban America. Quote, perhaps the most revealing aspect of the way slave patrols functioned is that they were explicit in their design to empower the entire white population, not just with police power, but with the duty to police the comings and goings and movements of black people. This was all hands on deck. Everybody was meant to contribute. They were the members who were formal in the slave patrol were paid 25 cents an hour in some cases and were fined if people shirked their duty. If they chose not to show up for duty, they could be fined anywhere from $5 to $10 in some of the slave colonies. I I just love that this idea of white people calling the cops on black people is just a storied tradition. Like, how dare you, like, I don't know if you saw that. There was one recently where yes, this it can be. this uh, guy was yelling at this black kid who was walking on the sidewalk in their neighborhood. And he straight up was like, why are you walking around here? And the kid's like, I live here. And he's like, well, what's your address? And he's like, I'm not giving it to you, very large, scary, bald white man. Yeah. Um, and like he pushes him and it's a whole thing. And it turns out that man was um like a drill sergeant at a local like army base. Um, but yeah, it's just like, man, there's black people walking around where I don't think they should be. That That is my responsibility to do something about. Clearly. So, like, getting to your earlier point and, you know, I guess a thing that led up to that was that deputizing all of the white guys to explicitly lord over and punish the black people meant that non-slave-owning whites who absolutely should not have had a horse in this race and were probably also being exploited by the landed gentry to a degree, they suddenly had this baked-in sense of superiority and a literal obligation to be racist. Slave patrols could also, also forcibly enter the house of anyone believed to be sheltering someone who had escaped. So they were also, like, literally punishing allies. So just generations of conditioning. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about white supremacy is that it's not just, like, oppressing one group. It's, like, finding other groups and, like, giving them incentive to maintain that oppression. It's... It's a super cool thing that we do. Super cool. Super chill. 
In places like Virginia and South Carolina, these patrols enforced what were called slave codes, which were laws that controlled basically every aspect of the lives of enslaved people, like they weren't allowed to go to places without the proper documentation, even if they were doing business. You needed your bathroom pass. You needed your bathroom pass. Um, they weren't allowed to basically have fire outside... The home, because the white people were so fucking fragile and tacitly aware of their own shittiness that they were in constant fear of an uprising because they deserved it. Is um, it fire outside the home? Uh, they Is this like everything was okay until the Fire Nation attacked? Like, what are they... <laughs> they, they thought everybody was going to do an arson on them. I mean, admittedly, but like, they're not firebenders. No, but also they didn't have matches. <laughs> so I guess, I guess a lot of people were like walking from one place to another with like a, to I don't know. I don't know how this works. It's fucking dumb. It's a fucking dumb thing because the white people were just so have, insecure. Have your bathroom pass. How dare you have fire? Everything is about us, clearly. So if you have fire, it must be to set us on fire. I mean, line up. It is soup for my family. So another part of this is that, uh, and this is arguably the most troubling to me, uh, is that there was an expectation that slave patrollers would be the ones to dole out punishment, i.e. beatings, on sight. Mm. There was no due process for enslaved people. Um, it essentially began and ended at the police level with corporal punishment. Do we see any relevant consequences of this today, I ask you? You know, I really can't draw any parallels mm. here. Mm. It's a, uh, I'm drawing a blank, drawing a blank. Shrek emoji. Uh, in his memoir, Solomon Northup, uh, whose story was told in the movie 12 Years a Slave, he wrote, quote, they have the right, either by law or by general consent, to inflict discretionary chastisements upon a black man caught beyond the boundaries of his master's estate without a past, even to shoot him if he attempts to escape. Again, drawing a blank on parallel. Yeah. I'm just not. Mm, hmm, hmm. Mm. What just a very single random occurrence in history? Just a complete anomaly. Yeah, mm. and it never happened again. We're being sarcastic, Zuckerberg algorithms. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Slave patrols existed formerly for a full 161 years until the. Confederacy surrendered in the Civil War ended in 1865. It's a long time. They existed longer than the modern police force. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, within months of the end of the Civil War, Southern states began passing laws that would evolve into slave codes in Jim Crow. During Reconstruction, local police, specifically sheriffs, basically just reverted back to the old slave patrol model, except now they were enforcing segregation and the disenfranchisement of black people, and it's been the same ever since. So anyway, thank you for listening. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's really interesting, because like, part of the discussions that I think we've been having in the last couple of years, but like, I remember being in like AP US history. I remember us talking about like the Revolutionary War period and like the Civil War period. I remember us talking about like, you know, the World Wars and things like that. 
I think reconstruction was like two classes. Just, and then there was it. They used the term carpetbagger. Thanks for coming. We're gonna... Teapot dome, teapot dome. We're gonna put on uh, probably tombstone again. Now it's time for the Titanic. Ooh, interesting. Like, it just, all of this was so glossed over. We definitely spent more time on the Titanic than reconstruction. And I don't think that's a just a Virginia thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like being, being in high school in Virginia, it's like the war of Northern aggression. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's just a Virginia thing. I think it's just an America. Like we're just going to ignore these 50 years. We're not going to talk about it. Yeah. And, and post civil war, one of the big things in policing in the South was their love, hate relationship with the 13th amendment. Um, I'm not going to go too far into this because it's related more to the U S prison system. And that's its own whole episode for another day Uh, (laughs) but to quote again uh from dr muhammad one of the really powerful expressions of how important policing and punishment were in the conception of the end of slavery was that the 13th amendment abolished slavery except as punishment for crime so in some ways the genius of the former confederate states was to say oh well if all we need to do is make them criminals and then they can be put back into slavery, well, then that's what we'll do. And that's exactly what the Black Coats set out to do. The Black Coats, for all intents and purposes, criminalized every form of economic power, except the one thing it didn't criminalize was the right to work for a white man on a white man's terms. Yeah, America. You know, I recently learned that the Pledge of Allegiance was created like in the 1940s to sell American flags. Didn't realize it was to sell American flags, but I knew that the under God was to differentiate us from the commies. Yeah, I mean, it actually, I don't think it had under God originally, and then they put yeah. in under God, and then they're like, we have to remove it, and then people were like, but like, it's always been under God, it's like, actually, it's a very new thing. But yeah, it was, it was basically this, like, dude was like, I want to sell more flags, let's create a Pledge of Allegiance, so they have to be in every classroom. Subjugation of the worker, you say? <laughs> That's American! <laughs> Since the 1800s, the definition of public order, like, the thing that police are supposed to maintain <laughs> that thing. Uh, that depended on who you asked. I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, so in the South, where the racist white former plantation owners had the power, public order meant continuing the separation and subjugation of people of color. In cities with big industry, public order meant keeping the workers in line and stomping out union activity. Fuck those, fuck those labor unions. How dare they? Want rights. In places with large immigrant populations, public order meant promoting the interests of the people who got here first. Not Native Americans? No. No, not them, though. They were here first. But, like, first and beige? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So the first of the Sherwin-Williams, like, white series. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a nice eggshell. That's verbatim what I was about to say. And so we see the police and elites really conducting social control, but calling it crime control. And in order to do this, they get and actually get like buy in from the community. Uh, they raise the specter of dangerous classes. 
So, suggesting mm-hmm. that, like, drunkenness and crime and hooliganism and political protest and worker riots, don't call them strikes, I guess, were the products of a biologically inferior, morally intemperate, unskilled, and uneducated underclass. I mean, you can still see echoes of that. I mean, when you talk about, like, the... the Oh, so distant, these echoes. So distant, these echoes. Well, like, particularly when we talk about, like, some of the stereotypes of, like, Italians and, like, the Irish mm-hmm. in terms of, like, drunkenness and, like, and violence and things like yeah. that, that's because at the time, these were immigrants that were mostly comprising a lot of these, like, you know, like, labor jobs that wanted to unionize and, like, perhaps... By labeling them a certain way, we could just, you know, have police, you know, beat their heads in and not give them, you know, money and stuff. Yeah. Hmm. And they, like, they try to normalize this by, like, again, the police forces, we're talking about the North here, we're, like, becoming this very formal thing. And when you actually make that a full-time job, that it becomes, like, this preventative Thing instead of being purely reactionary, so they're just inserting We're themselves. We're preventing in- crime. We're just inserting ourselves in the community, yeah. so we're a regular part of it, and you're not afraid of us, and you like us because we're every man. And we're gonna just take care of these things. Pulitzer and Hearst, they think we're nothing. Are we nothing? No. Are you calling Newsies again? They think they got us. Do they got us? No. Even though we ain't got hats or badges, we're a union just by saying so. And the world will know. Dude, that's a great musical. And it's all about labor unions in 1899 and about how the police... So as we've said... (laughs) There were definitely formalized police forces in the North, but less so in the South. But the South had this incentive now to imprison people, specifically black people, to get their free labor and uphold the status quo. Uh, So they were bringing all of these huge prisons and prison farms, but, however, are they going to fill them without a formal police force? Who could they possibly enlist to to dispense it? Racist vigilante groups, you say? Oh, those people. Specifically, the Ku Klux Klan, which was formed in Tennessee in 1866 for this very purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan and the police have just a lovely relationship, just this mutual accord of just, they go to each other's, like, you know, family picnics and eat the most bland potato salad. <sighs> So at this point, the Klan and other comparable white supremacist vigilante groups, I'm just going to say the Klan because for all intents and purposes it was, um, these assholes are basically the continuation of slave patrols, except it's just the guys who were really enthusiastic about being on the slave patrols, the guys who could not get enough. And were really into LARPing. Yep. They, They wanted jaunty hats. Uh, and now they're, of course, more or less deputized and put in the business of terrorizing, policing, and surveilling and controlling black people. Uh, they even set up clan courts, which is the most chilling set of words that I have ever I, put together. I bet court is spelled with a K. It's not, but it should be. <laughs> 
It's not the Kardashians, Ren. Oh my god. Oh, no, the the clan put a K in front of everything. Like, literally anything that was supposed to be C, it's a K up in Yeah. There. Night used to be spelled with an N. <laughs> no, but like, what was, it was the, the Marjorie Taylor Green episode where that guy was the Claylith. Oh god. <laughs> fuck's sake they just, just they, i mean they're horrible violent racist but they're also silly they were such horrible violent racists that the federal government did actually step in and that's one of the reasons that the 14th and 15th amendments got passed uh so things got a little bit better for like a minute mm-hmm. um but then jim crow laws were enacted in the 1880s and codified segregation and the mistreatment of black people in the south uh police in the south did not punished the perpetrators when African-Americans were lynched, and the judicial system refused to hold police accountable for failing to intervene when black people were being murdered by mobs. Again, history never repeats itself. So glad we are over this point (laughs) in our nation's history. Throwing back to our Boss Tweet episode, and we're switching back to the North again because I can't stay on the South too long or I'll die. Um... The 1800s also saw the rise of big political machines who often swayed, we'll call it swayed police efforts. Um, money, money, money. Our order is outside our front door. Money, money, money. money, money, money. Do you want to uh, pause and eat food? Yeah. Carbs and pizza, I'm going to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Dear listeners, if there is a very different energy coming back, it's because we have just... How carboloaded dare you? Sorry, that was my computer. <laughs> Not me. Not no. me pointing out the carbohydrates we've eaten no. and the... It's my computer wanting to interrupt with, like, a million alerts. How fucking dare you? Goodness. It is rolling, though, right? It is rolling. Bless. Last I remember, we were talking about... Oh, I remember. Reconstruction. So, um, we're, we're gonna go back to the North. We're gonna throw back to our boss tweet episode. In the 1800s, you also saw a rise in big political machines. This is like your Tammany Hall and whatever. And it's probably not exclusively in the North, but the examples we see are always like Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, New York. Yeah. Um, so what's going on here? Police captains and sergeants were often picked by the local political party ward leader who often owned taverns and ran street gangs that intimidated voters. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So the politicians in charge of specific areas were able to use their police to harass political opponents or have officers turn a blind eye to, like, the illegal shit they were doing, while, like, obviously simultaneously arresting their... Like, labor workers and whatever. Labor workers and, like, anybody who didn't... who disagreed with them who was doing the exact same illegal shit they were doing, like, they're the ones that are yeah, going to get... Yeah, it's a gang. Obviously. It's a gang. Yeah. So, I I really want to drive home the fact, though, that this was a period in history where police were specifically and actively used by political machines to carry out election fraud. Yeah. Cool. Yep. That's... Yeah. Mm. So I mentioned areas with a lot of immigrants earlier, um, and that's a really big driving force in northern policing in the 19th and 20th centuries. For the purpose of creating this 
othered class that poor white people could subjugate and feel better about themselves. It was like definitely immigrants in the North. Um, I think it's fair to say that it's different than the way immigrants, particularly those from Central and South America, are policed today because they weren't trying to deport people. They wanted them to stay because they needed cheap labor. Yeah. Cheap labor to build the infrastructures of what became these big cities. Um, And I'm just going to cut back to Khalil Muhammad again because he's the best candidate to read his book. Quote, there was an early emphasis on people whose status was just a tiny notch better than the folks who they were focused on policing. And so the Anglo-Saxons are policing the Irish or the Germans are policing the Irish. The Irish are policing the Poles. Black people are there. They're getting policed by everyone, but their numbers are fewer. And so this dynamic that's playing out is the police officers are a critical feature of establishing a racial hierarchy, even among white people. That's New York. That is New York. And they've been bastards the whole time. Yeah. Uh, Like, the most common thread between how this is playing out in the North and South is that the police were there to keep the poor people in line. Right. Yeah. Speaking of keeping poor people in line, by the late 1800s, union organizing and labor unrest were a big national thang. And the world will know in the journal, too. Mr. Hart said, Pulitzer, have we got news for you? I could do the whole song, but we'll stop there. Okay. Um, (laughs) New York City had uh, a little over 5,000 strikes involving almost a million workers from 1880 to 1900. Chicago had uh, like 1,700 strikes involving over half a million workers in the same period. They weren't calling them strikes, as I alluded to. They were calling them riots because, of course, they fucking were. Well, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the actual people who are engaging in, like, whatever movement, they're like, this is a strike. Yeah. And everyone who hates is like, no, 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 no. You're looting. And this is a riot. It's a riot, and if they called it a riot, then private businesses could, like, use the police as public employees to enforce private economic interests. Right. Because it's like, I don't want anyone busting out my window. Yeah. So using police against organizing workers was both cost effective for the bosses and politically useful in that it confused the issue of workers' rights with the issue of crime. Oh, what a proud tradition. I mean, that's not the word I would have used, but okay. Anti-labor activity also changed the way the police looked and operated. They set up alarm boxes throughout the cities and respectable citizens. Ooh. <laughs> Rich white guys. <laughs> uh, were given keys so that they could call out the police at a moment's notice. Uh, they also started having their own wagons, which, okay, so this is a whole revelation to me. So first of all... I didn't realize before, but they had the wagon so they could just haul a bunch of workers away all at once when they're busting up strikes. That's why you would need a wagon, because before you could just, like, walk somebody to the police station. The other thing is that they're called paddy wagons. Police cars are called paddy wagons because they were hauling away the Irish immigrants. So I love these like little racist tidbits that just become part of our everyday language. I didn't realize something I learned the other day. You've heard of a cakewalk, like 
That was a cakewalk. Is there an ethnic minority that we used to call cakes? No, it's a specifically a racist practice in slavery where part of the um, entertainment of an evening would be to get a bunch of slaves in your house and put a cake in the center and say, dance. And all the white people would laugh at all slave people dancing. And then they would choose who were the best dancers. And eventually, whoever was chosen last got to eat the cake. <sighs> So when it thinks are like, oh, that was a piece of cake or that was a cakewalk, it's referring to this practice that white people used to do to enslaved people. I hate everything. <laughs> Little racist tidbits why to did, ruin your day. Why did we come back to podcasting? We were watching dogs get adopted. I know. Puppies. But we must. We must inform the masses. We must inform all 53 of our estimated audience. Uh, they also put police, uh, police on horses and made their nightsticks longer so they could, in crowds, just more effectively beat people. Those wacky. Yeah. It's like playing polo. From above. With people. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, that said, it doesn't, it, this was interesting to me. It doesn't appear the police had guns until at least the 1840s. Um, in some areas, I think, much later than that. Uh, it took them even a surprisingly long time to implement uniforms because... They uh, didn't they, want anyone they to know your police because no one liked you. Because no. <laughs> uh, you're gang members. The first police brutality or police corruption commission was the Lexow Committee in New York in 1894. Things were so bad that they collected... 10,000 pages in testimony. They essentially found that um, just like the South police were straight up beating people that they thought were out of line without any due process. Um, uh -huh. it, this is where the term the third degree comes from. It comes from policing because they didn't want to use words that directly indicated that they were beating people. So they would say, I gave them the third degree. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, cool. I love, like, secret little languages mm. that we make mm. up to, like, describe the fun little, you know, just, war crimes mm. we're committing. Mm. Super cute. Just a, just a jazzy little expression. Um, this commission was sort of effective. Um, 45 counts of second-degree assaults were charged on law enforcement officers, and they ran the Tammany Hall boss which was not Boss Tweed by this time. It was Richard Croker fully out of the county. Um, it sounds like Tammany Hall never quite, like, bounced back from this. It did happen in the Tweed courthouse. Oh. This whole thing happened in the, like, Boss Tweed courthouse named after him. We okay, so we're going to uh, do this investigation into corruption at a Mick Corruption courthouse. Yes. Staffed by Mick Corruption party members. Yeah. Yeah. It's going so well. It, it's worth remembering that uh, the first publicly funded police force was formed in 1838. We're not even 60 years out from that. And they're having to run commissions to deal with the massive systemic issues inherent to policing. Because they're gangs. Because it's baked publicly in. Publicly funded gangs. It's in the cake mix. Ooh. America. Gross. That's especially gross because you're playing with your hair right now, and now I'm just mashing hair in a cake. But hair in a cake is a pretty good metaphor for- I just for pulled off- Pulled <laughs> a clump of hair. I'm just gonna- I don't know. Put it in my pocket. 
<laughs> my podcasting has that effect on you. It's like it's like a fun fetty cake, but instead of sprinkles, it's shit. It's racism. <laughs> it's racism. Instead of sprinkles, it's racism. <laughs> Title of this episode, absolutely. Police corruption in the 1800s did lead to the creation of private police forces like the Pinkertons, but they are going to also get their own episode. I wouldn't consider the Pinkertons a private police force, but yeah, it's... They're- Academics do. <laughs> well, I guess they are considered policing, but in the way of, like, traditional policing, meaning union busters. Yeah. They did, they did some detectiving. They did some busting of chops. They did some like business espionage kind of stuff. You know, they were, they were a whole thing. They were a whole thing. In the very early 1900s, we see the development of state police forces, most notably the Pennsylvania State Police. Uh, and the Pennsylvania State Police were predictably all white. Of course. Of course. Of course. It's the early 1900s. Of course they were. Uh, paramilitary, of course. Of course. Um, and they were created specifically to break strikes in Pennsylvania coal mines. Of course. Of course. Like explicitly. All That's why they created tracks. They were also tasked with controlling Catholic and immigrant populations. They were hosted in barracks outside the town so they would not mingle with or develop friendships with local residents. Yep. Yep. Mm. State police would commonly attack community social events on horseback under the pretense of enforcing public order laws. Um, Texas also was doing this at approximately the same time, but uh, it's different because they were trampling Native and Mexican populations. So that was a fun twist. It, it's just, you know, it just takes a, it's a coalition. It's a, mm. it's a coalition of bad Then there was the Great Migration, in which large numbers of Black Americans moved to northern cities between 1916 and 1970 because the South was poor and extremely racist. (laughs) I would have, too. Um, And I think that this was a pretty okay time at the beginning. Like, there was some degree of racial harmony right when this started, But as housing became more scarce, we see police taking a vested interest in redlining. Mm -hmm. Uh, Additionally, as black workers joined large manufacturing outlets, we see racism coming from not just the other workers who are worried that a person of color is going to take their job, but we see factory bosses going, no, we can't have the working class unite racially because they might unionize. And police are also... Yep used to enforce these ideas again Uh, this is i'm this is i am shocked and this is the first time i've heard of any such practice like this occurring yeah i hadn't really looked into the history of policing like almost at all before i researched this episode but i i mean it's exactly like me closing the paper bag and going i don't know what i expected it is a dead (laughs) dove just one long, horrible case of deja vu. Policing in America, it's definitely a dead dove. <laughs> uh, there were black police officers by the early 1900s, but they were almost exclusively assigned to black neighborhoods and were treated like shit. I don't know what you were expecting. A dead dove. Yep. The disproportionate police brutality against the brand new black community in the North led to a significant tension. And out of this in 1917, we start to see, please note the heavy air quotes, like two dozen race riots break out across the country. And 
I, I'm I'm gonna pull this from Khalil Muhammad, who explained it this way: "Quote: A race riot then essentially looked like an attack by whites on innocent black people. Black people then appealing to police for help. Police either refusing to help or disarming black people, who were then arming themselves for self-defense or being attacked by the police themselves." It's the circle of life, yeah, and it moves us on. I mean, it's our Wilmington massacre episode yeah. again. Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm not gonna get very heavily into this topic you because just can't win. There's no winning this. We no. have stacked the deck against you, and it's full of guns. Yeah, just, just if you're interested more on this topic, I guess listen to our. Wilmington uh, Massacre episode, but then multiply that by, like, 24 and add Midwestern accents. Mm, don't you know? Don't you know? Uh, a common thing across these events, though, is that police are failing to protect black people at the outset and then brutalize them once it escalates. That's, like, part of the formula for a race riot proud to be an american (laughs) (laughs) now if this happened once or twice i might not include it in this episode but like once police have been complicit in setting off over two dozen race riots across the country i think we can fucking well say that's part of police culture and history yeah i think that's fair i think that's super fair yeah In the interest of fairness. In the interest of fairness, to be fair. Uh, At roughly the same time, in the early 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois and other black academics are actually starting to study police culture and the sociology around it. And they all found that cities in the North had a police brutality problem. Shock Shock Pikachu Pikachu face. face. Yeah. That was kind of surprising, I guess, at the time, because... Everybody expected the shit from the South that was like, well, we'll allow it down there, but we're going to pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah. In the- I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, white supremacy is everywhere. It's just, you know, has different accents depending on where you Yeah. Are. And then there was Prohibition. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was 1920 to 1933, mind you. Lasted longer than I think of it lasting. Yeah, I always forget that it lasts. That. It always feels like it. Like after a year, they're like, "Wow, this did not work." It, it, yeah, in my <laughs> mind, it's like COVID of just a year of people like low key running alcohol. And it sucks because like here's the thing: like prohibition is silly, but at the same time, it's like like the initial feelings of prohibition was like, "Man, I would love it if my husband didn't beat me every yeah. time he drinks." Yeah, <laughs> I can't divorce him because I live I I live in this country and I can't divorce him. And no one's going to stop him from beating me, but at least if maybe he doesn't drink, maybe there's less beatings. He can change. I, it's not even that he can change. It's that the, the drunken rages will lessen. So it's like, well, I know I can't stop him from drinking, so I have to actually go to my my government to hopefully get him to not be able to get alcohol so maybe he beats me less. Because it's not like I'll get rights. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean we're we're a fucking Puritan country, also. I mean that's true too. We just love shitting on things that make people happy. Yeah, it, like there's also this weird Puritan through line where police always made sure that 
you know, to an, to an extent is this repeated theme that like, no, you mustn't be drinking more or in a different way than I feel is acceptable. And then once prohibition was over, it became drugs. Yeah. And, and that they've always felt this way about sex work. I mean, they yeah. will have sex with the sex work. Oh, absolutely. And then arrest her. Yes. Not always in that order. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, but we see a, of course, we see a huge increase in police corruption during prohibition. Are you fucking kidding me? Because like they're gangs. Because they're gangs, they're getting paid off by you know the party bosses that they promised real hard that they weren't gonna get paid off anymore. By, I guess, after the... We promise. Yeah. In 1929, President Herbert Hoover is... I pronounced Hoover the weird... With four umlauts. <laughs> President Herbert... Hoover. Hoover established the Wickersham Commission. Oh, I feel like that's a name I've heard. I just like it. it it's isn't just instantly also, familiar sounding. That a, isn't that an antagonist in a Dickens novel? Probably. They're all antagonists in a Dickens novel. <laughs> this, oh my god, Charles Dickens, I'm sorry. I know you were like the pop culture author of your time, but your shit's boring. He's on my list. Um, so, I mean, I guess Herbert Hoover tried to do a good thing. Or at least appear to do a good thing. Yeah, to to make police independent from political party ward leaders, the map of police precincts was changed so that they would not correspond with political wards, um, which solved one of many, many problems. Um, and ju- the commission's report, prepare your shocked Pikachu face, failed to mention anything about racial disparities and police brutality, and uh, the black community was understandably frustrated and disappointed by this. Well, yeah, because that wasn't one of the problems. Wasn't it? Not according to the people in charge. That was a fixture, not a bug. <laughs> oh, uh, I hate it. <laughs> <sighs> So starting in the 1930s and extending all the way into the 50s, uh, this guy named August Vollmer. Uh, I've heard of Vollmer. What did he do? He did a thing. A bunch of shit. He did a bunch of shit. He, he's not a bad guy that I have done a lot of research into. My understanding he might have been is a bad that guy. for a cop, he's one of the better ones, yes. but he's still a cop. He accidentally did some bad stuff, but it was based out of the idea of doing good stuff. Um, so he was the police chief in Berkeley, and he got the ball rolling on, like, professionalization of police and adopting scientific methods into policing. Um, so he implemented the first centralized record system. He asked that all of his officers have degrees, not just the third degree. Waka waka. Um... <laughs> And uh, he also was the one who kind of, like, brought lie detectors to police departments at large. That might be why you remember him. I was remembering specifically the science, the science part. Like, the fact that he was like, well, that's- guys, like, we can't just use our gastrointestinal upset to say why we think this person did something. And they're like, well, what could we use? And he's like, I don't know, like, 
Well, the answer was, I don't know, lie detectors, which admittedly, like you and I know now that lie detectors are very largely bullshit, but they didn't know that then, and it was like peak of scientific progress then, so I can't really fault him for it. It's so unfortunate how many TV shows show people being like, well, I'll take a lie detector test, and it's like, first of all, don't. Second of all, that shit means nothing. It it means nothing if you do take the lie detector test, unless you fail, in which case they feel like it means something. And if you refuse to take the lie detector test, then they feel like that's very telling. So there's no way to win. No, there's no way to win. Except for, I guess, to take it and pass. But then they'll just mention Which, how it's This should be like some effective. sleeping beauty shit where we're like, the, you know, fucking Maleficent's like, you will be on, you're, the, the princess will prick her finger on a lie detector on her 16th birthday and fall into a deep sleep or whatever. <laughs> and so the king is like, let's get all the lie detectors and burn them. Burn all the lie detectors and put them in a big bonfire. What a weird metaphor you just did. <laughs> I don't know what that was a metaphor for, or if it was a suggestion. Anyway, it's not a suggestion. <laughs> um, it, Volmer had a been, prophecy. Volmer had been on the Wickersham Commission, so he like actually this actually carried weight, and so this started becoming a thing across the rest of the country. Um, as the police get professionalized, part of that is um, reforming the way that the police treat the poor. So, finally, um, there was some increased outreach to poor communities, but do you know what was the uniting factor between most of these poor communities? They're white? Yes. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh-huh. Sounds about white. Um, at that point, European immigrants are finally, like, put under police protection, but this has not effectively extended to the black community. What? what? Here's Muhammad again. Quote, And so what it means to leave black folks out is that it's now this consolidated whiteness can not only turn its attention to protecting itself from black people, but can also use the stigma of criminality in the same way that white Southerners had used the stigma of criminality to justify that discrimination, to justify that segregation, to say we're not racist, they're just criminals. Consolidated whiteness sounds like like an evil perfume brand. Yeah. What is consolidated whiteness? What does it smell like? Detergent mm. and tuna. Ugh. Tuna salad. I mean, like, bad tuna. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not a good smell. There's, it's like mayo. I think it's definitely like mayo. There's like a fattery, fatty yeah. butteriness to it. Detergent sounds right. I don't... Yeah. 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 Um, the professionalization movement is also where we get... Uh, stop and frisk tactics, your favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which, it, uh, this is going to blow your mind. They have always been unwelcome and have always targeted communities of color. Again, just surprised, shocked, and awed. Uh, and of course, you have police involvement in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Uh, that could be its own episode. Also, uh, police were widely used to suppress protests and activists, often by brute force. Uh, they are still causing the, at at this point in the 60s, they're still causing the race riots that we talked Mm. about earlier, uh, and were 
genuinely a primary force in trying to preserve the idea of white supremacy. Though uh, it did go a little bit differently in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. civil rights era, and the reason it did not again not overwhelmingly so. Okay, I'm not giving I'm not giving those people more credit than they deserve. But it really was the first time where these things were being filmed. Yes. And photos were coming out. And so, like, when you read words on a page of, like, there was a race war, right? It's very easy <laughs> to just take it at its word. But then when you see pictures of, like, a cop singing mm-hmm. a dog on a child, you're like, mm, are we the baddies? Yeah. Um, national commissions were created to investigate um the riots and the political instability, like, this was kind of an ongoing thing for multiple decades, um, and universally pointed to the police as a source of social tension. hmm Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's it's a dove in a paper bag. It is a it's dead dove. It's a dead dove. dove. Yeah. As you can imagine, it was very awkward when the police started having their own unions. Yeah, that is a fucking <laughs> hypocrisy at its fucking finest. I was going to make a joke about them beating each other, but it sounds like that might have happened. Mm-hmm. But I mean, unions being union, when when that was happening, uh, politicians started using the police because suddenly they were mad at them because unions, uh, as a scapegoat for why there was so much crime and so little money, even though that wasn't why... Um, and then this led to a whole restructuring of police forces across America. And this is where you get things like two-person patrols, more different jobs and specialized tasks within police departments, and the police once again becoming a reactive force instead of a proactive force. Um, this restructuring also, purposefully or not, separated the police far more from the communities that they were policing and honestly, given the rest of the episode, both before and after, I don't fucking know if that's a good thing or not. Yeah, it's a... In the 1980s, there was a push to get police back in communities to heal the rifts between law enforcement and marginalized communities. How's that going? Well, last time I heard, really mm. well. A paper I cited from Eastern Kentucky University, uh, see the show notes, uh, notes that by this time there was, quote, an overwhelming body of scholarly literature which finds that the police have virtually no impact on crime, no matter their emphasis or role, provide a means to make citizens feel more comfortable about what had been a seeming insoluble American dilemma. So they're not actually doing anything except for making people feel better yeah no they uh, white people i don't have the statistics off the top of my head but i think it's like police well first of all i think it's police like literally like three percent of what police do actually is serious crimes of any kind right and then of that three percent i think they only solve like four percent of those crimes right so mostly they just ride around and do nothing Don't say nothing, Ren. They arrest lots of people for minor crimes. They do. And then shoot people. They do punch unarmed women in the face repeatedly. They do suffocate people for passing counterfeit $20 bills. 
Uh-huh. $20 does feel like the price of a human life. They do arrest six-year-olds from their elementary school mm. when they're having an autistic meltdown in the classroom. That's true. They also, um, you know, shoot teenagers because phones look like guns. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They accidentally mistake guns for tasers. Yes. Right? They do a lot. The days are so busy. Um... So I had the hardest time ending this episode. And, like, my next five paragraphs are just going to be me having an existential meltdown. Prepare yourselves. Um, Existential meltdown. Yeah. It's still going on, clearly, as we have just stated. I'm not even sure how many unarmed black people have been murdered by police in the last year because the number keeps climbing. By the time this is released, from the time this is recorded to the time this is released, it will be more. And I hate that. Mm. Extremely much. Um, I don't understand how or why you do current event issues because it's exhausting. <laughs> um, yeah, it, mm, it is. Yeah. It is. But I mean, if you look at the historical footprints of policing, it's all still there. Like, you still have the enormous biases against the black community. You still have this deference towards politicians and businesses over people. Um, not to insinuate that politicians aren't people, but they kind of aren't. Um, depends on the day. You have this drive towards having more stuff to outpower criminals. There have been improvements, like you said, like the public being able to document what's going on. So mm-hmm. there's some degree of accountability mm-hmm. has been important. Um, a lot of police offices have uh, stepped up or implemented any fucking degree of cultural competency training. That's relatively new. Um, body cams... Uh, in an effort to diversify police forces. I didn't even get to, like, once they started allowing ladies to be police officers, because that was, like... Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- It hasn't fixed the problem. Really? No. Oh. Are you saying white ladies also uphold white supremacy? That's a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> but yes, the short answer is, is yes. yes. And, uh, God, if you're a contrarian who needs stats and you're listening to this for, for stats or figures. Hi! 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 (laughs) Why are you still here? Um, I can tell you that black people make up 23% of those shot by police, even though they only make up 12% of the national population. Black drivers are far more likely to be pulled over and searched by police, uh, stop and frisk laws. Continue to disproportionately target people of color. There are specifics in the sources. Mm-hmm. I And only so many hours in the day. Once again, I think, and here's my existential crisis, I think that I'm like a lot of white liberals because I recognize that policing in America needs to be reformed, but I don't know what that looks like. Because I have this knee-jerk reaction to be uncomfortable when somebody says, abolish the police, or all cops are bad. Because I have known people who are not necessarily white who have entered law enforcement specifically to try to internally dismantle the shit that's going on. And I can't say in good conscience that they are, like, bad people, but it's clearly this bad institution that's, like, rotten from the core. And 
Jesus fucking Christ, it's never been a good system. There's like not, we can't go back and reboot from a particular save point because it's always mm-hmm, been that's bad. True. I mean, I think this is, this. I am not trying to like create this really horrible like comparison, but like slavery was an institution. Mm. It was fucking shitty. Mm-hmm. And like people were questioning about it, like well how will we do the economy yeah. and how will we do our Fair. farms and how do we do all this stuff but the there was no fixing it so we just said it's done it's over it just doesn't exist yeah. and we figured it out and so like police <laughs> Did we? well in terms of like yeah in in terms of slavery as a like legal entrenched right. thing within America Outside of the prison system. I mean, again, it's not that there were problems, but in terms of, I'm specifically talking about, like, well, how will a field be plowed? And again, it's not, we just talked about some of the problems with that. But, like, the economy continued. America yeah. didn't stop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, with the, with the institution of police, there is no fixing it, as far as I'm concerned. So, we get rid of it. We're done. And yeah. people are like, well, well, how will we enforce laws? It's like, we'll figure it out. Yeah. It will also probably be shitty, but, like, because we keep, like, making things shitty, like, we keep doing it. But there's just so many roles put under one umbrella that is the police. I think that dismantling all that, figuring out the parts of it that are actually working, like detectives for serious crimes and you know, crisis intervention specialists for people who are having some kind of crisis that, like, actually are social workers and actually know what the fuck to do and how to help people and write their situation, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, it's amazing. As somebody who used to do, like, specifically crisis yeah. work, like mental health, um, I have had people spit at me. I've had people threaten to kill me. I've had people literally try to break my hand. I've had people put hands on my neck. I haven't shot a single no. one of those people. Amazing. Amazing. However, did you work that out? Because I fucking handled it. Like, yeah. I de-escalated. I did the things I was supposed to do. Like, I just, you just do it. Like, yeah. you have the skills to do it. And it's amazing to me that, like, that is something that I faced every day and never once was like, man, if only I had a gun to shoot this person. <laughs> Because, like, that's, <sighs> so, the fact that, what, what what's so frustrating is when you hear these stories of police who are like, oh, but, like, this mentally ill person was acting erratically. However, what, I'm like, yeah, mm. it's weird that me, a person who at that point had been, like, had two, to, like, two years of professional experience, like, I was just, yeah. I was brand spanking new, is like, I can handle somebody like that, and Yeah. Mm, weird that you haven't learned those skills yet. It's almost as if you don't give a shit about learning those skills. Almost as if you don't really want to learn these skills, because... And that's not the purpose of police! It's almost as if the purpose of police isn't actually to, like, de-escalate anything. Yeah. Oh, so weird. I'm gonna leave it with a final quote um, from that same Eastern Kentucky paper. As we look to the 21st century, it now appears likely that a new emphasis on science and technology, particularly related to citizen surveillance, a new wave of militarization reflected in the spread of SWAT teams and other paramilitary squads, 
and a new emphasis on community pacification through community policing are all destined to replay the failures of history as the policies of the future. Slow clap. The slowest of claps. God bless America, (laughs) land that I love. So, I got done with this and just kind of collapsed into a heap. In terms of a self-care plan. Let's say first... In terms of a self-care plan, watch The Doghouse UK on HBO Max. Yes. Because you need some serotonin and puppers are where it's at. We had to, uh, again, cannot emphasize this enough, had to do this episode in two parts and watch puppies in the middle because it's awful. And we are cis white ladies who are not being affected by it really barely at all. We recognize that... And this is why I am going to recommend it. In lieu of a self-care plan, go donate to the fucking ACLU, the NAACP, and your local bail fund. Yes. Please do that. That would be great. <sighs> well, that's going to be all oh. for us this week, folks. <laughs> that was a... Okay, so I do want to say that was a very good episode. You did a very good job of trying to consolidate... Like 250 years of shit. 400 years. (laughs) Into something like manageable and bite-sized, which is like really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and again, like you, you've already kind of like dropped the, the NPR thing, but like there are absolutely more detailed explanations of the history of police. This was just like, let's just talk about again, the daily toxicity that exists. We are a couple of weeks past, we're like what, a week past the George Floyd conviction um and then like the day after i think it was between them calling the jury back to announce the verdict and the verdict actually being announced that mckee bryant was murdered yeah by police who she had called because she was unsafe in her foster home yeah and then of course around the same time was also dante wright yeah and of, and of course, Derek Chauvin's attorneys were like, this is going to bias people against our client. It's almost as if police keep shooting people. Yeah. And people should be biased about that. Almost. But I'm a radical leftist, so what do I know? The leftists are at it again. Oh, you SJWs with your cancel culture our and your uh, PC. A social justice warriors just trying to keep people from getting murdered. Sensitive snowflakes. So that is going to be all for us this week. Again, I think the best thing to say is to, again, donate to your local bail funds. Donate to the ACLU, the NAACP, and other organizations that are doing activism regarding police brutality. But also, there's also a lot of good jail advocacy programs and prison advocacy going on because it is a wonderful system of shit that keeps going. And buy Khalil Muhammad's book and listen to his episode of Through Line. Absolutely. Um, As far as we go, we do love you and we're sorry. If, if somehow, against all odds, you like what you're hearing. You should check us out, uh, thisfnguypod.com, uh, Twitter at thisfnguypod. Uh, we are going to have some Patreon bonus episodes coming out, so check us out there. Uh, Facebook, you know, again, if you need some serotonin, 
You go do to, now. You do now. Go to our Facebook page. There's lots of possums. There's lots of memes. There's lesbians. There's Dungeons and Dragons. There's little tiny plants. It's real gay. It's, it's wonderful. Real gay. Um, <laughs> as always, I'm Ginger Golub. I am Ren Martinez. Here's a bonus self-care tip. If ironing is too much, invest in some wrinkle spray. And I have. Also, please don't be these fucking guys. Peace. This fucking guy.